So have you ever thought there should be a stop sign here or they need to paint a crosswalk there or this crossing is ridiculous or this on-ramp or off-ramp into the road is needlessly dangerous? I bet you have thought that because we spend an awful lot of our time thinking about how systems dictate behavior and how if we want better behavioral outcomes, we put people in better systems. And I know we've talked before about the fact that you're less likely to die on a major highway than you are at a four-way intersection. And the reason is a major highway has on-ramps and off-ramps. They really very rarely have grade-level crossings, and it's almost impossible to cross the lane. I mean, directly at a 90-degree cross the lane. That idea is powerful, And we see these system flaws and latent conditions in our environments, in the spaces in which we live, all the time. I mean, it's a part of it. And and it's frustrating sometimes because we know better, but we're almost powerless to change the world. And in case you don't know this, you can't fight City Hall. I mean, you can, but I'm not sure it's worth the fight. That's what today's podcast is going to cover. In fact, I want to introduce an idea today that's called, affectionately, Civic Disorder. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. This is the educational component of the podcast. Maybe. I mean, that's bold of me to say educational. I don't actually know if this will educate you. I think it is a great opportunity for us to have a conversation. Because I have a story to tell you. Which, um, (laughs) I, I thought I would probably eventually tell you this story. I mean, I'm not keeping it a secret from you. But I didn't know I would tell it to you this soon. So, Let's jump into it. My name's Todd Conklin. This is the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. And we get together pretty often, so we talk about these stories. And we talk a lot about the world and some kind of basic principles to understanding how humans perform in systems and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that's what we do. So that's a recap. I don't know. I guess I'm guessing people who've never heard this before are listening. Maybe that's why I did that introduction. But the story I want to tell you today is a really interesting story. And it kind of fits. So in North America, we're at the end of the summer, um, and it's been, you know, the last couple of years have sucked. I, I don't know how else to um, massage that. This has sucked, and it's sucked big, and it sucks a lot. But it's weird that life keeps marching on. And this idea of bouncing forward to something better, learning from this, that's all really important. We've talked about it a bunch of times. But I have found that the way I do work has changed a lot. Probably the way you do work has changed a lot. Some of you not so much, but I'm guessing all of you somewhat. Even if you still go into the office or go to the job site every day, there's probably less administrative presence and less big boss presence, which isn't all bad. I mean, we can talk about that, but that's not all bad. But for me, it's really changed the, the way I interface with people a lot. And so I spend time hanging out on my computer and having discussions on my computer. And it's, it's okay. I mean, I get a chance to talk to lots of people. Um, I don't have to travel very much, and that seems kind of nice. But it's really forced me into um, some lifestyle changes, which are probably for the better. I mean, uh, 
I'm not the healthiest eater, which is the understatement of the world. I'm a big lover of the Tim Tam, uh, an adorer of the donut, an eater of the bacon. I like all those kind of things. If it's salty and sweet, I'm in. That's it. I mean, that, that, those are the requirements for entry. Salty, sweet, in. That's It's that simple. But one of the things that's happened, and it happened a long time ago, and I've talked about it a, uh, a bunch, actually, is that really early when life changed, early in the, the initial stages of the pandemic, when we were in pretty significant lockdowns and quarantines, we're still in them to an extent, so I'm not belaboring that it was worse then and better now. It's all sort of sucky pretty much all the way through. I decided I would uh, ride a bicycle, and so I bought an electric bike, which feels at first like you're cheating, but now that I do it a lot, it's fine. And and I liked it because it got me out of the house, but I still was socially distanced, uh, away from people. And electric bikes aren't so much about going fast. They're about going far. And you really do. You ride way farther than you would think you'd ride. So So in about a year... I've ridden almost 5,000 miles, which is a lot, right? I mean, that's a lot of time, but it's been really fun. And what's happened is I've become sort of an expert, I guess. Maybe the better word is highly familiar with the bike trail system in my town. So I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we have a pretty nice little bike trail system. It's not, you know, I wish it were better, but it's it's pretty good. And we have four or five main trails, and you can ride them, and and it's really fun. And you can do all sorts of different runs. And one of those bike trails is right in front of my house, the the river trail, because I live on the river, hence the name River Trail. If you're wondering where that came from, I'm pretty. No one's told me this, but I'm pretty sure that's where it's come from, right? And the river trail is a great trail. It's about uh, if you ride it all the way to the end, it kind of ends abruptly because they're having a little bit of uh, issues getting some right-of-way to continue it down the river, because the river doesn't end abruptly, but the trail does. If you ride the whole thing, it's about, I suppose you could, it's like an eight-mile ride. And it's fun because half of it is downriver, so that's really exciting because you can coast and go pretty fast, and it's kind of effortless. And then, unfortunately, the second half coming back is upriver, which means you got to pedal the whole way. And it's a little sweaty and tiresome, but you you get used to it, and it's kind of fun. And and it's been a great thing riding this trail. And I ride it a lot because it's right in front of my house. And some fun things have happened. Like I, I met the woman who wears high-vis every time she goes walking. She has high-vis, and it looks like she has a hot shot. And if you don't know what a hot shot is, maybe look it up. It's a device you use to move cattle. And I see her every day, and, and we've actually... We have sort of this relationship. It's a parasocial relationship. We're not really friends, but we see each other every day. And over time, we've sort of grown fond of each other. In fact, um, if I don't see her, I kind of worry about her. I I hope she's okay. And then there's the grumpy guy who listens to the radio, who every day I saw him, I said hello, every single day. And it wasn't until about eight months into the process that he started saying hello back. And now he's gone from the grumpy guy that listens to the radio to the guy who talks to me every single time we pass. Then there's the the old man that sits on his porch. I check in on him every day. And he always waves and talks to me, and I talk back to him. And it's funny, when you interface with your community by bicycle, 
it's completely different than any other way you can interface with your community. It's totally different than being in your car because your car is just a whole different deal. But it's also different than walking. And you do tend to talk to people a lot more. And so that's been really fun and a kind of a great sociological experiment. And, you know, I always am looking for places to try things out, to, to uh, micro-experiment the ideas that we have. And so I watch how people act on the trail, and I watch how the trail creates outcomes. I know the places where there's high congestion, and I kind of know why there's high congestion there, because I've figured it out, right? It's, it's really no different than every facility I've ever worked in, except in this case, I'm using it to sort of get away and ride my bike for eight miles. And this trail, all this year, really since I started riding it with regularity, had a place about three miles down from my house where the concrete was starting to um, divide at the weather joint. And what had happened is a tree root had clearly grown underneath the bike trail, which is a big piece of concrete, about 10 feet wide. And it was pushing up on one of the slabs of concrete and making it go out of alignment with the bike trail. And when it first started, it was just a little bump, maybe uh, maybe an inch, inch and a half. And then over time, and as we had kind of a wet spring and a wet summer, the tree clearly decided it was time to grow. And that bump, that crack in the sidewalk became larger. And somebody, I don't know who it was, but somebody came along and put some little small orange landscaping flags. Like if you're going to level ground or put in irrigation or or if you're going to do those those little wire flags with the little plastic tabs on the top. And they marked both sides of that. And those went away pretty quickly, maybe within a month. And then somebody else decided they would take a can of red spray paint And they spray-painted that crack. And so it became affectionately known as the red line. And it wasn't bad. I mean, it was just a little crack, maybe an inch, inch and a half, um, maybe uh, closer to two inches. And it was a bump. And you felt it definitely going downriver. And you really felt it going upriver because you hit it kind of as a step up. And the red paint stayed because red paint tends to stay. It, It didn't really wear out. And it was a pretty good way to mark that hazard. It, it definitely heightened awareness towards the hazard. And if awareness is increased towards the hazard, then in fact you have some opportunity to detect and correct, adapt, the things we talk about all the time. Except that as the summer went along, that crack got larger and larger and larger. And soon it went from two inches to three inches and then really closer to four inches and almost near five inches. I know this because I got out and measured it. I became pretty fixated on this crack because it got harder and harder to cross. You definitely felt it in a big way going downriver, and you definitely had to plan for it in a big way going upriver. And so a couple months ago, I saw a cone, a witch's hat, a traffic cone near the trash can on the trail. And then as I rode on, I saw another cone, a witch's hat, a traffic cone, laying in the river on its side. 
And I thought this is a great opportunity to practice what's called civic disorder. So let's define the idea of civic disorder because it could sound kind of dangerous, like civil disobedience or civil unrest. Those are kind of words for like a riot. But this is actually very different. And it's been studied really relatively recently around the globe. And it's the idea that people understand that one of the best ways to get a rule changed is to follow the rule. And so what happens is people actually replicate rules just as the city would replicate those rules in order to change things instead of actually appealing to the greater bureaucratic underpinnings of our cities, villages, towns, pueblos, what they do is they simply make the change often in the dark of night. And then they hope that the city will simply adopt the change as opposed to taking it back away. So examples of this, and they're all over. This is completely worth looking at because I think it actually is interesting to think about in the world in which we live, is towns and cities really throughout Europe and around the globe have carefully taken corners of intersections that were high risk to either bicyclists or to pedestrians, and they've painted their own lines on the road. And put their own traffic calming devices, rumble strips, speed tables, sleeping policemen in the road, usually again in the dark of night or on the weekend, in order to actually change the traffic pattern to make the place safer. And if you followed any of the research around the open spaces theory, which is the idea that you can remove all signage and the system becomes stronger, that's not running counter to the open spaces theory. In fact, I would suggest it actually reinforces the idea. Because if you can't get the city to make the, the intersection less complex by removing all the traffic indicators, one of the things you could do is use the very traffic indicators that are there to calm traffic to make that intersection more safe. You with me so far? I don't want to lose you. That process of putting up your own street sign, your own stop sign, your own slow, your own children playing sign, or painting your own parking area, or painting your curb yellow, or putting in your own crosswalk. When I was in high school, my boss painted his own crosswalk across the road because he could never get the city to do it, so he just decided to do it himself. That process of putting in your own regulatory signage and markings, not asking for permission, not going through the normal channels, not pleading with city hall, but simply doing it. That process is called civic disorder. And it's kind of a civic disruption if you think about it. And what you're doing is you're actually using the rules. You're painting the crib yellow or putting up a stop sign or putting up a yield sign or whatever you do. You're using the rules 
without the benefit of actually administering the rules through the bureaucratic channels in order to change the outcome. So the road gets safer, um, less children get killed, less people get injured, the road gets better. And better is kind of a relative term, but I think you know what I mean. What's remarkable about this is this is now an area of study. And what we're learning is vital to the story that I'm telling you. And this civic disorder, civic disruption that's happening is really a way to actually build a better system without the bureaucratic pain in order to improve the world, to make the world a better, safer, more reliable place. And what's remarkable is as you look at it, what you find is that most townships and cities and metropolitan areas, instead of erasing the work that's been done by the citizens in the dark at night, simply adopt it, formalize it, bolster it, make it more powerful, and move on. And so this idea of civic disruption, civic disorder, right, this allows citizens to actually change the system. So the sharp end of the stick all of a sudden exercises influence, but they do it in such a way that it's actually hard for the blunt end of the stick to do anything other than simply adopt the improvement. That's the notion of civic disruption, civic disorder. So here I am on one Tuesday afternoon. I've identified two traffic control cones, two witches' hats. I love calling them witches' hats, can you tell? And I have an idea. And the idea is, is I'm going to actually take those cones, because they look really official, and I'm going to set them up on either side of the big red crack. And I think, I wonder what will happen. But I'm sort of playing around with this idea that if I mark them and the markings look official, that will make the people who are supposed to watch this ta- this trail, who are supposed to actually keep this trail safe and stable, that will make it look like they did it, which will probably put them in a position where they're forced to act. Or the alternative is some kids are going to get those cones and throw them back in the river, which between you and me would not be that hard to do because the trail is next to the river. So I get the cones and I clean them up a little bit. Nothing big. I mean, they were in bad shape. And I put them on my bicycle, which I might add is not an easy feat. It is hard to carry traffic cones on a bicycle. It's almost like they designed them so you can't steal them with a bicycle. Not that I'm stealing these. Remember, I found both of these wayward cones, one in the trash and one in the river. I cleaned them up and I drug them to the big red crack. And I put one on one end of the crack and then the other on the other end of the crack. And I marked the hazard clearly with visual indicators So now we have a red stripe across the concrete and cones on either end of that red stripe marking this four and a half inch gap. 
And I thought, they won't last long. This won't be a problem. And so I started calling it Project Cone. And I got my friends, the other people I rode with, the lady with the high-vis and the, and the hot shot, the grumpy guy with the radio, I got my friends to check the cones every once in a while. Just check on it. Just check on Project Cone. And I talked about Project Cone a lot. And sure enough, people checked on it. And it was really interesting, you guys. I found this quite remarkable. I thought they might last a week or two weeks or maybe three weeks. But I put them out in the 1st of August in 2021, and they stayed. And they never got knocked over. They really didn't get moved. In fact, I noticed people would straighten them out, and they looked perfect. They indicated that hazard perfectly every single time, and nobody touched them. And the craziest thing is it looked really official. Now, I always thought I should take a picture of this. I mean, I really thought I'm going to take a picture, but I thought I got lots of time because there is no way this is going to have any impact. I mean, you can't fight City Hall. I can't push a rope. I cannot get them to come out and tear this slab of concrete out, repour it, and fix it. That's not going to happen. I mean, I've written letters a bunch of times. I've called. That seems to be nothing. I, I leave messages, send emails, nothing. But I put these cones up, and I never took a picture. And I guess the reason I never took a picture is I, I thought I would have a lot more time. But in fact, last week everything changed. So last week, I'm riding the trail. I hadn't been on the river trail in a while because the weather's really nice, and so I can go on other ones, kind of up in the mountains and look around, poke around. And I'm the kind of guy that rides bike for a purpose. So one time I was in Amsterdam, and I was with some people I was working with, and they told me, and I'll never forget this, that there are two types of people who ride bikes. People who dress for the ride and people who dress for lunch. I am definitely in that second category. I ride my bike to have lunch, to have brunch sometimes, which is kind of bougie and fun, but I like it, right? And so because the weather's been really nice and I've had a little time, I've gone on other trails. And last week, I decided I'd check the cone. So on Monday, I checked them and they looked great. They were still there, still doing their job. I was really pleased to see that nobody had moved them and it looked amazing. And then just for fun... I hooked around Tuesday of last week, and the weirdest thing happened, you guys. I got there, and the trail was closed because there were a whole bunch of guys with jackhammers knocking out that slab of concrete that was four and a half inches above the other one. And pretty soon, there was a concrete truck, a truck full of cement, and they put some forms up, and they re-poured that piece of sidewalk. They took the cones away. The red line was missing because they replaced both slabs, the low slab and the high slab. And now it's a perfect piece of concrete. Absolutely perfect. And I could take a picture of it now, but it's not that meaningful now because it just looks like a normal sidewalk. But I'm stunned to realize that the civic disruption I did by simply placing those two cones to mark the hazard, knowing full well that because they looked official, they would probably leverage somebody to think, we need to fix this because somebody's marked it already. It increased the liability, I'm sure. 
But what it really did was allow me, at the pointy end of the stick, all the risk, none of the influence, to exercise some influence to change the system. And what I think is coolest is that that four-inch gap went away. I don't think I did anything. I mean, I really honestly did nothing. I found two cones. I found them on the same day. It wasn't hard. I squirted them off with the hose in the park, and then I put them up on either side of the... I think the person who painted the crack red did more work than I did, but the cones took it up a notch. It made it look official. And it actually, using the system that my city has, leveraged them to improve this, I'll bet you, before they intended to. They certainly didn't do it at any point all last year. But last week, they made the trail better. And and I tell you this story because I think this story's worth telling. Well, first of all, it's Project Cone. But secondly... I think this idea of disruption and disorder, if done correctly and with a mature understanding of the system, could actually help facilitate change. One of the best ways to get people to change a rule is to follow it. One of the most important ways to get people to change systems is to heighten awareness to the weakness in the system, but act like it was their idea, that they knew it all along. And it really does set up this sort of system where change becomes inevitable. It would have been hard to not fix that because somebody put two cones out there and made it look like they knew it was a problem. That's the story of civic disorder. And that's the podcast for today. I wanted to tell you guys this. It's been, a, it's been kind of a long-running story. And, and, and I didn't want to talk too much about all this stuff because I think it might be a little boring. But this one's really got a good ending. The only mistake I made was I didn't take a picture. I'll learn next time for sure. That's the podcast. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. Check in on one another. Monday's a good day to do that. And for goodness sakes, be safe.